sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, it's true. A brand new, fresh out of the oven uh, <laughs> episode of this uh, nutty conversation is now. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this where are you going stupid. with that? That's I have good. no idea. <laughs> you, you painted yourself in a linguistic <laughs> corner on that one. <laughs> I certainly did, but uh, but it's 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 late. It's dark already, Aaron. It is dark already. That was weird. I don't think I've seen the lights on in this building since mm-hmm. last year. Uh, so crazy. It's dark. Yep. That's really not that interesting, is it? No, it's not. Should we restart? Nope. It's uh, good. It's really? Good. You're actually going to put the, this is going to be, that's how we're actually going to start this episode of the Pirate Monk podcast. Guys need to know that we're not that good at this and that we're just <laughs> like all of them. I think that's, uh, that's important. Yeah. Well, I lost the script. Where is the script? <laughs> that's that script that we've had for all these years. <laughs> So anyway, I'm Nate Larkin. Uh, I'm sitting here, of course, with uh, Dr. Aaron Porter. Wow. Yeah. I've become, I went from an admiral to a doctor, just like that. <laughs> uh, and here for our weekly conversation, edification, encouragement, education for Ooh. pirate monks around the world. Edification. Yeah. Do only Christians get edified? I've never heard of a, a person not in the church that uh, claims edification. Boy, you know, I think that, yeah, I think only Christians are allowed to get edified. Man, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. <laughs> so how are you doing? How's your week going? Uh, it's going fast. Uh, we are recording this uh, a couple of days before Thanksgiving. Yeah, In the year 2019. that. Uh, yeah, time is speeding. I was under the impression, Aaron, that when I uh, went from doing two jobs uh, to one, and, right. <laughs> and devoted myself entirely to the Samson Society that I would have a little more discretionary time. I had I had great plans. I was going to write for four hours every day. Aaron. I do remember that. And yeah. I also remember hoping that you wouldn't expect to keep all of your plans. So <laughs> you got over it? <laughs> well, it just, I mean, so much has been happening. And, uh, you know, I have I managed to write one blog in the last two months. But you've been connecting with a lot of guys. I really have. It's wonderful. So my plans aren't working out so well, but it seems as though uh, Samson's going well, and I'm having the I'm having the time of my life. Isn't that great that you were not able to ascend the ivory tower to write your books, but instead stayed in the basement with the guys? <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And, and what about you? Well, I need to uh, make a confession. All right. I have behaved uh, fecklessly. <laughs> fecklessly. Okay. All uh, right. That's a, uh, uh, yeah. Tustin men. I've received uh, multiple messages from folks from Tustin. Oh, you uh, insulted the I know. fair city of Tustin. Yeah. You only got one of the messages. I received more than that. Oh, my. Okay. Look, Tustin people, I'm sorry. Okay. On a prior episode <laughs> of the Pirate Monk podcast, <laughs> you announced that there would be some kind of a local Samson retreat somewhere in Southern California. And then you said it would be in the middle of nowhere in some like podunk town called Tustin. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's not in the middle of nowhere. It, it's in the city. Okay. Okay. So I spoke rashly. Uh-huh. I was wrong. Okay. I had reminders that it's the gateway city to beautiful beaches and places, which is all true. 
I had one Tustin experience in a strip mall at uh, at a job training okay. that we were required to do. It was not in a beautiful area. Uh, I arrived late because I had to be on the 405 freeway, uh-huh. and I didn't hear that I had to get a B or better on all the tests or I would be fired from this job. Okay. I'm not going to say what restaurant I was working for. Okay. Uh, so I came in just thinking, okay. well, this is dumb. I'll sit around and, you know, twiddle my thumbs for this entire week that I have to drive all the way to Tustin from, yeah, yeah. like, San Pedro. And uh, the day before the end, the guy said, um, you've been getting, like, C-minuses on everything? Uh well, I don't know what to do because you're going to get fired. And I went, oh, yeah, what? I'm getting fired? <laughs> and I said, well, okay, just give me tonight. I'll study all your tests. I'll take them tomorrow and I'll get A's on all of them. Yeah. To which he rightly said, now, I'm 18, okay? I'm yeah. 18. Oh, I, this explains a lot. I, you should have started the story this way. <laughs> yes, you're sorry. 18. I'm 18. You're automatically an asshole right then. Def- okay. Definitely. Okay. So when he heard me say, oh, well, I'll just study and get all A's, he rightly said, well, why didn't you study in the first place and get all A's? And I said, and I quote, well, we all know this is kind of a joke anyways, right? I'm going to oh, learn how to do the God. job when I do the job. Yeah. And that made sense to me until the words trickled forth from my <laughs> lips and I saw the look on the man's face who ran the whole academy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, I took all the tests, I got the A's, and my manager got a scathing report from that fellow yeah. saying I should probably be fired anyways. So, Tustin, that was my one experience with you. I missed out on all the beauty. When I'm next in the area, I'll look you guys up, and you can just take me on a tour of Tustin. And you know what I just realized? I, in the past few moments, spoke fecklessly about 18-year-olds, so I will probably get... <laughs> <laughs> Isn't feckless the best word? I don't know why I love it this week. I know. And what we all need is more feck. I, feck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need more feck. That's, Absolutely. That's great. That's what recovery is all about. Uh, so, yeah, the other thing that's, uh, besides feckless, that's been occupying my mind, and feckless has come up a lot, mm-hmm. is hearing British people saying that they're taking the piss out of someone. It's just all this uh, British television yeah. that you watch That's, on yes. YouTube? Yeah. Okay. And it means messing with them or, I don't know, insulting them. You insulted me. You took the piss out of me. That I just don't like it. It doesn't work for me as an American. We need some British listeners to tell us, explain to us exactly what that means. Yes, please. Okay. I would love that. All right. We've, we've got some guys. I know. So yeah. you, you guys need to write us. So can I tell you about my experiment? Oh, we, please do, yes. So we we left this uh, for a real conversation. I've been doing a Silas experiment. Now, okay. usually when I have done Samson-type experiments, they haven't gone well. You haven't always approved, <laughs> and they usually have turned out badly. Um, but I'm on my computer almost all day, yeah. whether I'm doing coaching or engineering stuff. And I'm not a guy. I've never loved phone interruptions, phone conversations. Right. That's just not how I am wired. Right. So I have uh, a a special, (laughs) I made a secret email account, which by the way, it took me 30 minutes to find a name that hadn't already been taken. Wait, you have a special... I'll, I'll Normally, do the whole we thing. say we don't have secret email accounts. I know. Those usually lead to trouble. Yes, but it's with my, it's with my Silas. And, and oh, I, okay. All right. So 
I have this. I made an email account that All would right. be private between me and my Silas. Okay. Throughout the day, at least once a day. All right. I'm writing the answers to my four questions, but a lot more than that because I'm way more wired to write my thoughts out. I'm oh, okay. A very flow of consciousness okay. guy. Okay. But then it's also there throughout the day, so I'll I have the ability to do it twice a day, three times a day. If something comes up, if if yeah. something's triggering, I just go to my other screen That's and right. write it out. And I told my Silas, you do Aaron at gmail.com. <laughs> yes, okay. that would have been great. Okay. Uh, I, I told him he doesn't have to respond to everyone. I just sure. need to know he read it. Yeah. And then we still make time to have conversations uh -huh. on the phone, but it's not every day. But I'm, I'm writing out far more detailed things than I would take the time to speak on a daily basis. Sure. So it, it's becoming like this very honest journal, which will be thrown away, okay. so, <laughs> which is why it's in a separate email account. That's a legitimate use, right? Sure, sure, oh, okay. sure. Okay, just okay. checking. Okay, all right. Uh, so what do you think about that? I think it's awesome. I think the people at the NSA are having a great time reading it. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. No, no, I love that. That's You found a medium that works for you, uh, and, and it's the best way for you to be spontaneously honest, to communicate in a way... Uh, yeah, if it works, it works. Here's another. Uh, I love the way that uh, we're learning new, different, better ways to to uh, communicate with one another, especially with our Silas. Heard it heard again today. Somebody else telling me how much the Marco Polo app, which many of us were introduced to at the fall retreat, mm -hmm. I was I didn't know about Marco Polo before that. This kind of uh, voice. Text. I don't know what it is. You're not texting somebody, but you're sending them a message that it, it's a video message. Yeah, you're recording a video message. Yes. Uh, uh, used often to a group, though, right? You can do it to a group or to or to a single person. So you can do it as a direct message, or you can do it to a group. Mm -hmm. So uh, what have you liked about that? Because you you've been using it. Oh yeah, I love. I'm getting check-ins from guys. Um, here's what I like about getting a check-in via Marco Polo. First of all. Much like a like a text or like a, a voicemail, I can watch it when I have time to do so. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be immediate, uh, although I could do it right away. What I do like is, first of all, a voicemail is superior to a text because uh, in a voicemail, I can get voice inflection, tone, and, and put some context onto the words, mm -hmm. right? That Marco, that polo thing is even better because I'm seeing the guy's face. Uh, and one of the things they taught us way back in the day in Princeton when I was studying preaching is that when we uh, stand up to speak, only 6% of what we communicated is communicated by the actual words we say. There are so many other factors that communicate uh, what we're feeling. So, yeah, to be able to watch a guy's face and, uh, and listen to him talk, I find very, very useful. And uh, I don't mind returning those messages. I don't know. It's kind of fun. To, I look at myself in the freaking phone. <laughs> and That's what makes it fun? Yeah. Hey, that's what I look like. I do. I'm fascinated. I, I can put the – I can – I can – put the phone up high so I don't have to see my double chin. I can look a little <laughs> bit younger that way. And 
Uh, or, and I can actually show where I am. It's, I can put the call in context. It's nice. And I know if they start putting backgrounds on that, you'll be all over it. Because when you start doing Zoom, <laughs> man, did you love putting those different backgrounds Oh, yeah, out. exactly. I found great backgrounds, yeah. <laughs> that is great. So Marco Polo, Slack, uh, so many ways to connect with groups of guys. Yeah. Um, I am glad I got your approval for this Silas experiment. I've really enjoyed it. It suits me so well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe other guys will do it. Yeah, I, I mentioned it to another guy yeah. just today uh -huh. who immediately said, nope, that's the worst <laughs> idea ever for me. Um, All righty, there you go. Yeah, yeah. you got to have a Silas who likes reading emails, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And and if it doesn't work for you because you're a talker, then leave your voice messages, and that's good too. Right. Uh. Let's see. What what are we looking at? Time? Well, we don't have time. There was a whole other thing I wanted to say. I'm going to say it real quick. Okay. Um, when you're talking about the nonverbal communication being 94% of how we interpret something. Right. Uh, I've had a pet peeve over the years uh, that Christians get sucked into an idea that we can read the Bible and interpret it through simple hermeneutical tools. Mm-hmm. And I never hear anyone acknowledge that when we read Jesus saying something, when we read something that Paul was yeah. saying in his own mind, we we create in our imagination all of that 94% that gives us interpretation. Right. So I can say, well, I looked at the Greek, I looked at the context, I looked at what other people have said for 2,000 years. Yeah, but when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, what was the tone of his voice? What did his face look like? Yeah. Because that's going to tell you everything about who God is. Oh. And I just want to throw out to our guys to be incredibly humble and uh, gracious with yourself that in this journey, we have to discover who God's character is so we can put the right nonverbals mm -hmm. on things. Yeah. Uh, and not just trust in what a book says it means. Yeah. And to recognize this is all very slippery. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you go. That's my very brief, uh, the hermeneutics of nonverbal communication thing that I hope will at least let some of you take a, a deep breath and let Jesus talk nicer. And thus ends today's lecture from Dr. Aaron Porter here at uh, the Pirate Monk Academy. That was really good, Aaron. Well, uh, we have another doctor on the line. You do know people are going to actually think I'm a doctor. That, that are just tuning into this. Okay. Isn't there some law against that? I think there is. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're a... Oh, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going... <laughs> you, can, you can tell me at the break. So we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to bring the real doctor back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> Just play the simple songs 
Gotta knuckle down Until your fingers are raw Can't just play the simple song Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast, and our guest today is one who I have really been looking forward to uh, talking with on the air ever since I had a chance to do some, you know, we had some private conversations at a leadership summit in Colorado a few weeks ago. Of course, I have known of Dr. Steffens for years. She wrote one of the finest books for spouses of sex addicts, uh, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, some years ago. Dr. Mm -hmm. Barbara Steffens, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've really been looking forward to this. <laughs> I think it's going to be fun. Oh, that's great. Man, that's yeah. just, that just means you haven't been talking to the right people. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Steffens, uh, we like to get uh, personal on the podcast. Everybody okay. has a story. Yeah. And uh, yes, you're an expert. And yes, we're going to talk about big issues. But before we get there. Would you mm -hmm. give us a little bit of the backstory? How did Barbara Steffens wind up as Dr. Barbara Steffens and in this field? Well, they kind of go together how I became Dr. Steffens and in this field. So um, let's see. I went to school as a grown-up with two little kids and became a counselor. I really started with an associate's degree and then found out I really liked education. Mm -hmm. started doing some lay counseling in my church and I found out I was pretty good at helping other people. So slowly but surely went into the field of becoming a professional counselor, had a lot of really cool jobs, worked at a church for a while, a lot of different nonprofits or large agencies in my, my hometown. And then one day life changed. Mm. I was just a happy wife, happy counselor, happy mom, and I stumbled upon some information my husband had been trying really hard to keep from me, yeah. to keep secret. And so that was the moment when um, my life really changed for good, and good like forever, but also good in that God brought a lot of good out of it. Um, so fast forward through a few years of some good recovery work on the part of my husband, my own healing journey of trying to figure out how can I stay in a relationship when with someone that I know has the capacity to betray me, mm -hmm. um, even though I deeply wanted to. So you probably hear that story a lot with the men that you, you have contact sure. with and what that process is like. But as a believer, I really, really understood that um, 
God was going to use it. He wasn't going to waste it Mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what that would look like. I just trusted it. Um, One day I asked a good friend of mine who was leading men's groups at one of the large local churches here. And I said, so where's the group for someone like me? And he said, Barb, when are you going to start it? (laughs) So that's how I ventured into the world of supporting and encouraging partners of people who have sexual addiction, problematic sexual behavior, whatever you want to call that. Yeah, yeah. So as I was doing that, I really started to realize that the information that was out there for people like me really was not sufficient or didn't make any sense for most of the women that I worked with. Right. Uh, We were called co-addicted. We were called codependent automatically. And what I was seeing as a trained clinician was whole lots of trauma. Yeah. Uh So that led me then to go back and uh, have the crazy idea of getting my doctorate so that I could do research to really show the level of trauma in partners. So that's why I am now Dr. Stephens. <laughs> and my um, doctoral research was really the basis of the book, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, um, journal article before that, and mm-hmm. then has really um, led to a change in the sexual addiction field. Yes. Where it's very, very rare to hear that word co-addict anymore. And more and more clinicians and coaches and other helpers are understanding the trauma the partners experience. So tell me a little about the difference between uh, codependency and the idea of being codependent and uh, the trauma that you're talking about. Mm, That's one of my favorite things to talk about. (laughs) See, I really have come to believe that what we call codependence are trauma responses. Oh, wow. So it's, it's a way of trying to adapt and survive what I call crazy. So a lot of people, let's say in early childhood, they're growing up in a family where things are just out of control or, or they don't know quite what to expect. They develop behaviors to adapt and to survive. And especially for females, we learn that you're quiet, that you're a peacemaker, that you try to anticipate the needs of other people because that helps keep you safe. So if a woman brings that, that those kinds of learned behaviors out of childhood into a relationship with someone with an active addiction, Even if they don't know about the active addiction, some of those behaviors will come back up because it's starting to feel crazy again, and this is what I know to do. So I had just stopped using the word because to me, I don't have to put a label on something that someone learned to do to try to survive. So so let me take it out of the uh, sexual behavior realm for a second so that I can get a clearer picture of what you're talking about. I'm thinking right now of a mom of Mm -hmm. a drug-addicted son, single mom, Mm -hmm. uh, who really, he's in his probably mid to late 20s, and she still mothers him like Mm -hmm. a little boy uh, and wants to keep him from all consequences. And Mm -hmm. her identity is very wrapped up in that relationship with him. So that Mm -hmm. would be kind of one of those classic codependent situations. So Re, give me some new words for that situation. It's still trying to adapt to crazy. 
only in this situation, the crazy is her, her son. Mm-hmm. And her relationship with that person is so intense and she's attached to them mm-hmm. that she's doing what she believes is the only thing she can do is try to find a way to maintain the relationship. Now, with some good support, things like that, she might learn some other ways of dealing with this, including maybe backing away from supporting the person, drawing some boundaries, hard lines. So that's more a matter of education and letting them know they have some different options. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the motivation, the motivation is not so much identity. The motivation is the relationship. The motivation is the attachment. So again, I just choose not to use pathological words to describe when someone is trying to maintain something that they fear they're going to lose. I've noticed you use the word attachment there a couple Mm -hmm. of times in that response. Um, I imagine that attachment theory has played heavily into your understanding of these uh, relational dynamics. I I know, uh, you know, a a well-used phrase in the world of uh, codependency or you know, when that with that approach is is loving detachment all about detachment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say that when you're coming now at the situation from a different angle and you're understanding we're dealing with trauma survivors here mm-hmm. um, are those uh, tactics and strategies of loving detachment and so on still applicable? I think it depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. I think that in some circumstances, let's say the person with the problematic behavior, whatever that is, mm-hmm. if they're getting and they're, they're humbled, they're repentant, they want to change, then that that detachment may not be necessary. There's still need for boundaries, things like mm-hmm. that. But if you really want to repair the relationship, I'm seeing the changes I really long for. I'm I not going to pull this. back. Oh, I love I'm, this. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Why, why pull back? But I still have to be in a position of protecting myself. So what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So then we talk about what kinds of safety needs does the partner need? And how can she manage closeness and being far away in ways that make sense to her and understanding that she can change that. She can get closer. And if it starts to feel squirrely, if it starts to feel unsafe, then she can back away Mm -hmm. and change her boundary system. Mm -hmm. So I see more flexibility there than I think what a lot of people see. Yeah. Um, It's very different for a partner where their loved one is not willing to make any change. Right. Then that that detachment out of self-care may be what she needs to do to survive. But if that person really wants to change and she is starting to see and to believe behaviors that demonstrate it, then she can be a support as long as it feels safe enough to her. But also understanding that she's just had her world blown up and the idea of getting close to someone that just blew up her world is pretty scary. So there's going to be, you know, I'm going to get close and I'm going to back away because of, again, attachment. There's been a huge attachment rupture there. Yeah, yeah. So a quote from my study, a woman said, I loved my husband and I wanted his comfort, yet he was the source of my searing pain. Mm -hmm. So wanting to get close and wanting to 
step away. So that's that's normal early healing is come close, go away because I sh- I want to believe you. I can't believe you. I can't believe you did this. I really want to believe you're going to change. So it, it's a it's a rough road. Nate and I have been talking a lot more recently about the the role of love in a, a spouse dealing with someone in their family with addiction that a lot of the old thinking was pretty hard edged and set mm-hmm. very tough boundaries and tough love and confrontations. And that there's more information about that flexibility that can include a loving and a safe environment for also the addict or the person with the problematic behavior to mm-hmm. find healing. Yeah. I think in the past, the fear is if I start to allow too much flexibility, then my love is going to be abused and I'm going to just keep getting re-traumatized. And so as yeah. a knee-jerk reaction, it was, let's just shut that down. And so, so how does a person, uh, keep that flexibility where they can still get their needs met? I think that's what a crazy thing you're saying that a wounded spouse still has needs that they really yeah. do want to get met from their spouse but there, there hasn't been a clear road back to that. Mm-hmm. So you're saying right. one thing you've said is if it feels unsafe, then put those boundaries back up. But what right. are some other ways for people to just avoid black and white hardline thinking and allow for more flexibility? Well, one thing that I've really come to believe is that, um, let's just talk about sex addiction field in particular. What we've done is we've separated the partner in the attic too much. Mm-hmm. And for too long. And so allowing for, again, I'm going to have, you know, as a partner's advocate, I'm going to say, if the partner feels ready and safe, start having some couples. I want to say it's not counseling. It's more like couples crisis work mm-hmm. where they can talk about how do we manage this wanting to be close and yet I can't trust you. Start to work on some basic communication start to understand what the boundaries are, helping the the person in recovery understand the trauma symptoms that they're seeing in their spouse, because then they can assist her in her healing by understanding she's not mad at you all the time. She's just triggered and on fire in her brain. And so she needs some reassurance. How do Um, do people find that? I mean, you just differentiated counseling from what, what was the phrase you used? Uh, a crisis kind of crisis couples work right a well-trained person working in this field like someone that i've trained Mm -hmm. would understand the difference between doing couples counseling and doing couples crisis work where you're trying to keep the relationship together as much as you can while also wanting to help both people feel safe in the relationship so what what questions could a listener if they if they're thinking wow that's what that's what my relationship needs what questions could they ask a counselor to know if they know the difference? Um, I would just say, look for someone that is uh, trained in this field specifically, mm-hmm. and then ask questions about how do you view the partner? How do you view the relationship? Um, what's the role of um, early couples recovery work from your perspective? And what would be some red flag answers that if, a, if somebody... Um, we don't want you together at all. It's going to be another year or two before we're going to have you get back together. That would be a red flag. Mm-hmm. Another one would be, we want to do all the sessions with you together. So those extremes. So if you're hearing someone say, we'll take it 
as it comes and as you both are ready to do that. And then what we'll do is start to teach you some skills and give you some tools on how you can manage day by day. We're not working on the marriage right now. We're working on two wounded individuals and how can you coexist and what's going to help you feel safe in this, especially this, this first year. So it wouldn't be like weekly. It would probably be like once a month where you get both of them together. But you're understanding that, you know, if, if they're not separated, they're living together. So you have to help them find ways of managing that. Mm -hmm. um, so it would be those kinds of questions. But I would say that in the sex addiction field, there's not a lot of people that really take on that model yet. And that's something that I, myself and other colleagues have really been working on trying to improve. And, and thus the birth of APSATS. And thus the birth of APSATS. Tell well, us really, a little about APSATS, would you? And then I want to go back to, to, to like the signs of trauma and help us understand a little sure. more clearly uh, okay. the picture. Yeah. So APSATS is Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. Um, we were formed, I guess, officially in... 2012, and it came out of a felt need for more education for clinicians and those who would seek to help, especially the partner, because mm -hmm. we found that there was so much focus on training people on how to help the person with a sexual addiction, sexual compulsion, um, and there were still so many people that really firmly believed that the partner had their own addiction. They were co-addicted. Yeah. So we wanted to fill in that need, developed a curriculum um, that was very, very trauma-based, trauma-informed. Um, it's all grounded in really, really well-researched uh, trauma resolution model originally developed by Dr. Judith Herman. Um, and so we've just been training folks from since 2012. Um, we do three to four trainings a year. We've trained people all over the United States, Canada, mm. the UK, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, Finland. Wow. Singapore. Did I say Singapore? Anywhere. All, all over. But unfortunately, all English speaking or predominantly English speaking. So mm -hmm. we have a lot more to do. Um, but that's how it was formed out of that felt need. And so what we're doing is training from a model that's trauma-informed on how to help the partner. So it's really understanding the, the traumatic dynamics, but also how that model can improve recovery for the person with the addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the whole system. But yes. primarily those two people, that coupleship. Yeah. I love that you are really an advocate for the preservation of marriage where, you know, where, where it's not certainly in every case, um, right. you're not going to put the marriage above the, above the, the health of the two people, but, right. uh, with, but where there is, you know, a will to heal and grow, yeah, you're all for that. You're all for saving that marriage wherever we can. If they want it, I want it for them. Mm. Absolutely. And if they decide I can't go down this road, then that's their decision. Sure. I think an, an issue that we've seen in our field is we have told people what they need to do and what they have to do mm -hmm. rather than really um, structuring our counsel or our advice or our programming around the individual unique needs of the, of the person and the coupleship. Right, right. 
uh, one of the... Uh, Go ahead with your trauma question. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll remember the question that I want to ask. Okay, afterwards. good. Yeah, let me ask the trauma <laughs> question. So, so it seems to me, if I understand the story correctly, that what really started to turn the lights on for you and your colleagues, uh, you know, first of all, you became well aware. You know, I was given this simple explanation when I got into recovery 21 years ago. I'm addicted to sex. Allie's addicted to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I've got work to do. She's got work to do. She pretty much resents having to do work because I've got a problem. Meanwhile, I'm getting care and attention that she's not getting. And she's having a rough time that I frankly don't understand. Right. Um, and it seems to me that at some point it, it, you know, it occurred to you and to your colleagues that a very high percentage of the spouses of addicts were exhibiting the classic signs of PTSD. Yes. Uh, and uh, so these were trauma responses. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with what trauma and post-traumatic stress looks like? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple ways of understanding trauma. So the one that most people are familiar with is the traditional PTSD. Mm -hmm. So that's usually an event, something that happened. So you're blindsided, didn't anticipate it, really didn't know it was coming. Most partners don't know it's coming. Mm -hmm. um, in my research, I think when the sexual addiction was uncovered, 75% of the time it was the spouse who did it by searching, finding something, stumbling upon something. And so that's the traumatic event. That's, some, that's the being blindsided. Right. So you can compare it to any other kind of thing, whether it's a natural disaster. The ones that are the closest are any other kind of interpersonal um, betrayal or trauma. Right. Um, like sexual assault, domestic violence, things mm. like that. Um, so the symptoms of that are shock, numbness, um, real uh, extreme emotions, being hypervigilant. That's the always being on guard and watching for threats. The difference for a partner of a sex addict are the threats can be things like a computer or an iPhone or their husband's face mm -hmm. or um, walking through the mall and walking by Victoria's Secrets or a song on the radio. So they can be anything. It doesn't have to be directly related to that moment they found out, but it, it has meaning and connection with mm -hmm. that moment. Um, they have nightmares, they startle easy, um, real high anxiety, um, incredible fear, terror. Wow. Um, just terrified of what else don't I know? Mm -hmm. So they'll spend time, just hours ruminating over and trying to figure out, I know that what I didn't know hurt me and now I never want to not know again. Oh, so wow. they will go through great lengths to try to find out what don't I know. Because their whole perception of their history is being traumatized as well. Wow. They'll replay memories thinking, well, this is what I thought was going on. Right. And now what was really going on and what's real in my life. So their their existential sense of themselves is also traumatized. Yeah. But it's it it really is very messy. It's excruciating. Hold for one moment. I'm not going to make fun of Nate because I left my phone across the room while rushing to set up and it could go off at any second. Either. And it could do it at any moment. <laughs> so sorry. 
Okay. So anyone who's experiencing these kinds of trauma symptoms, anyone who experiences these kinds of trauma symptoms wants them gone. Mm-hmm. And so they'll make up all sorts of things in their head around, if I just did this, if I just knew this, then it would go away. But it doesn't go away. It takes that's, a long time. That's a huge thing that, that you're saying that I certainly uh, have missed wow. in the past, that you have to go back and question everything that you thought you knew, every event. Like that's every a, event. And so then you have like two parallel versions of life this is you do. my old version, and this is the unknown new version. Yeah. And so they go on this trek of trying to find out what is real. Because they are functioning as if this is, this is real. And then when they find out information they didn't know anything about around someone who they thought they knew or thought they knew fully, mm-hmm. it also leads to questioning other events. And as they get more information, they're going to find that some some positive memories are now going to be tainted by finding out that there was acting out or betrayal going on during those times. So unfair question, but what do you do about that? I'm obviously it's a huge process, but what hope can you give to people that, yeah, yeah, we can do, we can work on this. This is healing can happen here. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two things. One is, um, I'm a, a real strong proponent of the therapeutic plan disclosure process. Okay. Where the person who has been engaging in the secret behaviors um, intentionally and w- willingly goes through a process of writing out their history, their acting out history, with the help of a trained provider who mm-hmm. can make sure that they're being truthful, honest, they're motivated to do this, and they really want to do it. Um, So they work on that, and then the person that is there able to support the partner helps them start to prepare for that process so that they know that they're going to get the clearest picture of what has happened in the relationship so that they can put put it kind of in in a, uh, I don't want to say in a box because we're not going to file it away, but put some parameters around it. Put it in proper containers. Yeah. yeah, and and to answer questions because a lot of times partners are terrified of things, and then when they go through the therapeutic disclosure process, they find out that did not happen, and so they can go, okay, I don't have to be scared about that anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So it really answers a lot of questions and can really reduce anxiety, and then it can give them a way of putting it in place in their own history. But they have to be well-supported and well-prepared. This is not something you do just with, um, I have horror stories, and I could tell you horror stories oh, yeah, of how it's yeah. been attempted. So it needs to be with a really well-trained uh, provider who knows how to do this. And that can help reduce the trauma of it. It's still very painful. I have not gone through one with anyone where, where there wasn't pain. But if it was well done, there wasn't more trauma. Okay. What about for those that are past that? They've already uh, had, they figured out how to do disclosure on their own and perhaps uh-huh. are still reaping the rewards. Uh-huh. So where, where does the healing start for oh, the mean, traumatized what, spouse? Are you saying disclosure went badly? They... Yeah, yeah. The rewards was sarcasm. I, I know our listeners can't smell it. From, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Man, we certainly hear a lot of, uh, you know, awful bloody disclosure stories. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I do too. 
So sometimes what I suggest is they do it again, mm-hmm. but with someone trained to help them. So it's a supportive environment and it's a caring, healing environment mm-hmm. rather. And so they have a new memory of that oh, rather yeah. than the old butchered, butchered process. So it's a, a, re- a redeeming of that mm-hmm. and doing it in a proper way. And that's a gift that they can give each other to do that. So that's one way. So now, let's, um, okay, sorry. You were going to give another way. Uh, the other way is um, once the partner has all those things and they can put it in some kind of parameter for themselves, they can come to understand that even if their loved one was not fully present and was not being honest, that they were fully there. So they have to then reclaim their own history. Mm of what it was like for them. But that's a process. You're not going to say to them, well, just remember you were fully there because that's not going to make any sense until they really work through grieve, feel all the feelings of my loved one was not honest with me when we were going through this together. Yeah. Uh, Another word that I'm picking up, you're using a lot and uh, it resonates with me because I know it to be so true. And yet, sometimes a very unwelcome word. You're talking about a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. More than just steps and checklists and do this and do that. There is yeah. there is time. Healing takes time. Talk with us mm-hmm. a little bit about, about process and how you see this unfold uh, in the life of couple that is working to survive some kind of sexual infidelity? Mm-hmm. Well, I think about it in terms of traumatic grief. Mm-hmm. When you've had a sudden death of someone you love, and really, in essence, there's a lot of that kind of sense here. Yeah. The sudden death of a relationship, of a person, the person you thought you knew, of the, the partner's own perception of themselves sometimes yeah. they're grieving that. So we tell people grief takes time. And when they ask how long does it take, it takes as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. So that's what I say to couples, to the individuals with this is it's healing is, is not a linear process. I don't find it to be a step process, although steps are helpful in some parts of the restoration process. Yeah. But, but healing is messy. So it's being um, understanding that messy is normal and to be expected and that you can be doing really well for three, four months and then all of a sudden have a setback. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going to say that's normal. That's to be expected. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a dance um, where the steps change every time you do the dance. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. So true. All right, this is going to be fun. We're going to preempt uh, our listener mail. The last time we talked about trauma, we got more mail than usual from um, (laughs) both uh, from folks on both side, both those Mm -hmm. with the behaviors and those who had been hurt. So throwing it out to you, what do we say to these couples? Uh, We will just we'll just talk about the two letters. Basically, we got a letter from one man who felt like. He had not been involved in his problematic behavior for some time, and he was doing his work the best he knew how, Mm -hmm. and his wife was not participating, and that when we talk about it, we leave out that situation of a Mm long-term deal 
where uh, the spouse won't participate. The other side okay. was from, uh, we get comments from women sometimes that feel like it comes back to what Nate was saying, that we're making it their problem, uh, telling them they have to do work. And so we got a letter from a person that felt like that was really hard to hear. So how do we address both of those sides of the spectrum? Hmm. <laughs> from my perspective, especially if we're talking about the partner needing to do her work, it's a language issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I say to a partner, you have just been in the worst, most horrific life event that most people can imagine. And so, of course, it would be helpful for you to have support and encouragement with people that understand this, that understand the tra traumatic dynamics of that. Mm -hmm. And we're here for you. Mm -hmm. If I say, partner, you need treatment. You need to do your own work. Yeah. Embedded mm -hmm. in that is there is something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And any trauma survivor automatically feels a sense of responsibility. If only I had done this, if only had I not done that, then this would not have happened to me. And I find partners respond much better and it's much more respectful to say this happened to you. Yes. And we're here for you to help you figure out what does that mean for you and what do you need to heal? Mm. So well, I don't even use a lot of recovery words. Mm -hmm. I don't use work. I don't use treatment. Good. And when I'm teaching clinicians, especially clinicians, because we love to do treatment, that's not what most partners need. Right. They need safety, they need space, they need time, they need validation, they need their feelings normalized, and they need tools. Yeah, yeah. So once we get that language in place, how, uh, you know, some some folks see that the wounding that's happened and they desire to step into healing and care. Mm -hmm. uh, others, um, you know, it's scary. They feel like isolation is much safer. Mm -hmm. So if someone's feeling flinchy about, you know, pressing into this, whether it's a fear that this is going to be shifted around on them or whatever might keep them in isolation, what, what encouragement can you give uh, to, to take, take a step towards care and healing? I've been doing this work for over 20 years. And once a wounded partner sees and has contact with other wounded partners, mm. that really helps them. Yeah. Because they understand that their experience, although it's unique, um, they're not in isolation. There are so many others. Yeah. And those others can be of support and encouragement to them. Mm. And they're not, those others, because they've been blindsided, are not going to blame her for what's happened. They're not going to put labels on her. They're going to be there. They're going to say, me too. I get it. I understand. But that means we have to have more resources and more support services available for partners. Just saying, go to this counselor, again, embedded in that, is there something wrong with you? Even though, you know, I don't believe that, that's how it's going to be received. So I think the front line needs to be our faith communities. It needs to be... Um, as many kinds of support networks and support systems we can put in place because 
just like for people struggling with their sexual behaviors, one size doesn't fit all, mm-hmm. which I truly believe. Yeah. I think it's the same for partners. Um, and if, so if they get an invitation to just join, let's say, a closed Facebook group where they can ask questions and get some honest answers, if that's their first step, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. If it's a book and that's all they can tolerate right now, then then let's start there. But it means the people that are in their larger community have to have more information on how to how to help steer that person in a direction that's going to feel safe enough for them to stick their toe in. On the flip side, so many partners are terrified of getting support. And it's not that they're terrified for themselves. They're terrified that if I go and get help, then other people are going to know about my loved one. And so there are Mm. some special populations of partners where it is so hard for them to get help. Number one, pastors, wives, wives of pastors, or any public figure. Mm -hmm. But in, let's say in the faith community, especially Christian faith community, wives of pastors, they will just suck it up forever. Yeah. Also, they understand that if if someone knows this, then I can lose my livelihood because my husband could lose his. Right. So there's so many potential negative consequences. So I'm real tender, real gentle with partners on what their fears are around talking to anybody. So you are one of those people I wish the guests could watch you talk because you are tender. <laughs> you can you can just see it. You, yeah. You've yeah. got a big heart. Can people start learning this vocabulary? Uh, with your book, is that what is discussed there? We talk, we, yes, we do talk about that in the book. And then we also talk about that when we do training. Our trainings right now are just for clinicians and coaches, mm-hmm. people that would want to coach people in recovery um, or people that are dealing with this, you know, are, life are, trauma. Are some of those coaches, uh, do they do it online if somebody, yes. okay. How, how do yeah. people get to that list of trained individuals? Well, they can certainly go to APSATS, which is APSATS.org, and we have a really good directory of uh, clinicians and coaches, um, again, predominantly from the U.S., but also um, other countries. And the cool thing about coaching is coaches aren't bound by state lines or even country borders. Um, coaches can do what they do. I'm a, I'm a coach as well as a clinician. Um, and that's really helped me support people from anywhere and everywhere. So anybody that's afraid of uh, someone being too close to their real world can get someone in Finland to do their coaching. That's right. The time that's zone right. will be perfect. Uh, so It, it really good. is. And especially for these special populations of partners that, that say, mm-hmm. I am so scared the world's going to know, is those online groups um, really protect anonymity. So they're a good, safe place to start. Mm-hmm. I, I have to tell you, Barbara, that when I got to spend some time with uh, with you and some of your uh, colleagues at the Leadership Summit in Colorado a few weeks ago, uh, you know, I think what struck me, uh, what really swept me away emotionally, this was this realization that uh, I've been so focused on the Samson guys. Mm-hmm. And we've been working so hard with the guys, and the guys are doing uh, their work. They're doing tremendous things, uh, and you know we all love our wives. But uh, I think Samson, it's <laughs> yeah, Samson is a company of Christian men. But those of us who are married have 
a responsibility and obligation to see that our wives are cared for as well as possible and to support them. And so it's not outside, I don't think it's outside the purview of Samson to do what we can to encourage the growth of peer support and then good, uh, you know, pr- quality professional care from people like Dr. Stephens. And the vocabulary thing is huge. And yeah. it starts with that. That's yeah. we're Yeah. So how can people find your book? I assume that it's uh, everywhere. Amazon. <laughs> the finer it's, bookstores everywhere. Carrie, your sexually addicted spouse by Dr. Barbara Stephens. And Marsha Means, and only oh, yeah. online. Okay. You have all sorts of other books about sex addiction in the brick and mortar stores, but not the ones about trauma and the partners. They just don't show up. Isn't that on the nice? Shelf. Okay. So you get it online, and sometimes it feels safer to get it online. <laughs> this, it's this also an cool. audible book. And oh, you know, yeah. Sure. Yeah. You're not making a statement when you carry it to the register. That's uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Why, why did I just get like a glimpse that getting a recovery book on sexual healing carries the same shame as picking up porn yes. at a brick and mortar store? Right. That's yeah. just yes. sad. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But it but it is true. Well, uh, Dr. Stephens, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for making time in your schedule to talk with us mm-hmm. and with our listeners. Uh, I look forward to... Uh, working with you more in the future and drawing on your expertise. Uh, thank you for your willingness to uh, be of assistance. To oh, our you community. are so welcome. You are so welcome. And you know that I'm here and ready. All right. However, I can help you when you're talking about helping the partner. All right. Well, we've got, we've got some, some plans maybe uh, in the making that are, uh, cool. we, we can't yet announce, but exciting things ahead. That would All right. Be great. Well, Thanks. Stay with us, huh? Yep. We will be right back here on the Pirate Bunk Podcast. Awesome. I was climbing a mountain, asleep in the moonlight. The ghost of my grandpa came to me in a dream. As the stars hung above us, he started singing this chorus laughed loud as hell and said this to me take a few chances a few worthy romances go swimming in the ocean on new year's day don't listen to the critics stand up and bear witness go slay up and talk till the sunrise war and love and sorrow he said stop spending all your money on forgiveness of sins today is all you promised don't trouble with tomorrow he faded into the forest proudly singing this hymn take a few chances a few worthy romances go swimming in Slay all the dragons that stand in your way. 
and we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. That's great. Yeah. Love it. I'm I'm so excited by anybody who cares about language that uh builds up instead of tears down. It's huge. And uh d- doesn't Dr. Stephens just have the kindest most, you know, restful, healing, reassuring presence? I just love that any jokey kind of comment I made, she would turn immediately back around to and this is how we're going to care for people. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. so like it's it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, I would feel very safe uh bringing my scariest stuff to a person like her and I'm so glad that others have been trained to do it. I love that it can be done from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's rough for people that are, you know, in parts of the country they don't have access to that that quality. Yeah, let's make sure the listeners understand that through AppSats they can connect with a trained coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then using uh, Skype or Zoom or one of these other video communication platforms can get the help they need, even if they live far away from a metropolitan center. Yes. So it's available to all of you. So check it out if you need it. Take that step. Or if this is scary, um, take whatever step feels safe to you. <laughs> Oh, see? Very good. I'm very learning. nice. You're a softer, gentler, kinder Aaron all of a sudden after just, spending time with Dr. Just Steffens. 30 minutes with Dr. Steffens, and I'm better. <laughs> she can do that for you, too. Sign up today or whenever. <laughs> Meanwhile, we'd love to get your reaction to this conversation uh, or any contribution or suggestion you would like to make. And you can reach us, as always, at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Nice. Do we have anything else coming up that we need to announce? We're kind of at a, a holiday lull. We are, yes. We hereby announce the holiday lull. But we're going to do our best. Now, I've got some traveling to do in the next couple of weeks. It'll be a bit of a challenge to record these, but we're going to do our very best to get out a weekly episode. Where are you going? Uh, I got a, I, yeah, I've got uh, family trips to take. Going to go see kids and grandkids. I've also got a difficult trip to make to visit a sister of mine with early onset Alzheimer's mm-hmm. who's declining very quickly. So, uh, yeah. And uh, other stuff, yeah, on the calendar. Suddenly, I've gotten very busy. But this conversation, this weekly conversation is very, very important. We're going to find a way to, 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 to keep it going. Yeah. Well, and if you're out of town, I'll just take the little recorder down to the pub and grab whoever's there and just record an episode with them. It will be just as good, I am sure. <laughs> no. All right. That's, well, that's it. Uh, that's it for this week. Until next week, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. We're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs>